Okay, let me pray again. We'll begin with our teaching time. Father, we do thank you again for allowing us to come together and to meet with you corporately in this place and in this time. And we do pray, Father, that you will lead out our thinking, that you will govern our minds and our hearts, that you will profit us, that you will enrich us, that you will deepen us in our faith, that you will strengthen us in joy, in peace, in the conviction of faithfulness. Father, we do bow before you as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God whose faithfulness is everlasting, and the God who has manifested in fullness his faithfulness in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him we know in full our God in truth. And as those who are called by his name and share in his life, Father, I pray that we would be faithful to that heavenly vision, to that truth that even defines us now as your people. Cause us to have our hearts and minds fixed on him. And by your grace, by your spirit, cause us to grow up in all things into him who is the head. And may we delight in that journey together. May we be faithful stewards of that calling towards one another. And in view of this goal that you have revealed to us to sum up all things in the heavens and the earth in Christ, we ask you all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as I say, last time we were considering the ratifying of the covenant. And the high point of that, if you recall, was this fellowship meal that the elders of Israel, together with uh, Moses and Aaron and two of Aaron's sons, went up onto the mountain. And it's, that, again, that strange passage in which, uh, in, in which the author said that these men saw God. They saw the God of Israel, and yet they were not consumed. And that coming after God had already forbidden anyone, including animals, from approaching the mountain, going up on the mountain. And twice God warned the people through Moses and said, if anyone comes up and, and gazes at me, he will perish. And now you have these men, 70 elders, together with Moses and Aaron and a couple of Aaron's sons going up on the mountain and gazing at God and nothing happening to them. God did not... Uh, reach out against them. And we saw that the reason for that is that at that point, what we're to understand is that Israel covenantally, as son of God, was blameless before God. The intimacy in terms of the covenant definition was perfectly in place. Son and father were perfectly of one accord with one another. And that becomes the context for this next instruction in which God tells uh, Moses, you, all these men go back down the mountain, but you, Moses, come up again onto the mountain where I will meet with you. 
And the intent that God has is to um, take the uh, covenant that has already been articulated by Moses, written out by Moses in a book, sprinkled with blood, ratified, um, to take that covenant definition and now bring a new written form of it, written by God's own finger, the producing of the tablets of the covenant. And the, the, you see that pledge uh, given by God to Moses, come up, I will give you these tablets. And then in chapter 31, at the end of 31, you see God inscribing the words of the covenant. We know at the very least the Ten Commandments uh, onto those tablets. And so that writing of God of the covenant, his own uh, inscripturating of it, so to speak, uh, giving a permanence to it in these stone tablets, is the bookend to this section that takes us from 25 through 31, which is God's provision of a priesthood and a sanctuary. And I asked Dylan to read that section for us at the beginning of 25 because that's where God, in a sense, affirms what was the ultimate significance of this Abrahamic relationship that he's ratified with Israel, which is that I will be your God and you will be my people. You will dwell with me. I will dwell with you. And so God says, take a contribution from the people to build me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. It's what God had already promised before. And Israel understood was the goal of their deliverance from Egypt. We saw in the Song of Moses in chapter 15 of Exodus that as Israel sings this song of celebration after the destruction of the uh, Pharaoh's army, the Egyptian army in the sea, they say, you have brought us out to bring us to your holy mountain, that we would dwell with you in your sanctuary. So now God is calling for the building of a sanctuary, the taking of a a contribution for that. And now there is this a long set of instruction. We're not going to go through all of it, but from 25 through the end of 31 of God's defining and prescribing of this sanctuary, how it's to be fitted out, and then the providing of a priesthood uh, that will administer that as well. So, again, the covenant ratified, defined, and prescribed the father-son relationship between God and Israel, and the priestly system was God's provision for mediating that relationship. It comes after the ratifying of the covenant, and so, in a certain sense, the priestly prescription, the sanctuary prescription, is not a part of the covenant proper, but it's important to the covenant. Because as we'll see, the father-son relationship that now through this fellowship meal covenantally was shown to be without blame, without distance, without any kind of alienation between father and son, Israel as covenant son of God. Now that relationship, though, is going to be mediated through a priestly system which speaks of imperfect intimacy some sort of distance, the need for some mediating instrument between God and his people. And that implication of compromised relationship or lack of faithfulness in Israel's own sonship, that reality, as we've talked so many times, even to this point, hints at the fact of the potential calamity to God's purposes 
if the Abrahamic people cannot fulfill their own calling on behalf of the world? What will become of God's covenant oath, his covenant intent bound up in Abraham, if the Abrahamic people cannot fulfill their own calling and identity? So the way in which the text gets at this is that as Moses goes up onto the mountain, now he starts receiving this instruction concerning a place that God will inhabit, but a priesthood who will mediate the relationship between him and his covenant son, the people of Israel. And while Moses is up on the mountain, Israel, which has pledged itself to faithfulness, and in the form of the fellowship meal has, in a sense, expressed that the integrity of that relationship. Now Israel is already preparing to violate the covenant. Moses is up on the mountain getting provision for mediating a covenant that is managed distance, while Israel is down on the ground, as it were, affirming the fact of that distance that's going to be in the relationship by preparing to make this golden calf, which is going to come in chapter 32. So Israel's already working towards breaking the covenant, violating its own sonship. And while they're doing that, unbeknownst to Moses, God is giving a provision to manage that relationship that that will be broken. So that's the tabernacle and the priesthood. And I'm not going to obviously go through all the details of that, but that kind of sets the context for what's happening So what's the relationship then between the covenant and this tabernacle, this sanctuary, and the priesthood? Well, we see, first of all, that God gives very detailed instruction concerning this sanctuary. And that instruction and the the sanctuary and the priesthood comes after the covenant is already ratified. So there is a distinction between the sanctuary and the priesthood in the covenant itself, as I said. And the author of Hebrews gives us some insight into that. If you remember when we went through Hebrews, where he talked about the fact that the covenant was founded on the priesthood. The the covenant at Sinai was founded on the priesthood. And he uses that to argue for the fact that where there is a change of priesthood, there is a change of law or a change of covenant. In that context, the fact that Jesus is a priest of a different order. There's a change in priesthood from the Aaronic priesthood to the Melchizedekian priesthood associated with Jesus. So the connection between law or the covenant and the priesthood is that the law was founded on the priesthood. Well, here, the priesthood comes after the ratifying of the law, right? The ratifying of the covenant. So even though the priestly provision followed the covenant's ratification, the covenant presupposed that system. Again, because it was the ordained means to manage the covenant relationship. God had pledged to Abraham that he would dwell amongst his descendants. He would be with them. They would be with him. He would be their God. They would be his people. He would have a relationship of covenant father and covenant son with them. 
And even though the whole land of Canaan was in a sense his sanctuary, his dwelling place, it was necessary that there be a particular place within that land where God would be encountered, where he would encounter his people, where they would encounter him and they would worship him. And so he establishes a sanctuary, a physical place where he will be present among the sons of Israel and where he will be worshiped and encountered through this vehicle of a mediating priesthood. So God is king in Israel, but not in the sense of being a detached despot. You know, our rulers in Washington have nothing to do with us, right? They don't know us. They don't care. They're, they do their own thing for their own reason, according to their own agenda. But God would be husband and father, ruler in the midst of his people, not a detached despot off someplace, but in the midst of his people. And he attested to that through the tabernacle and more narrowly by his Shekinah, often called Shekinah, that glory presence of God that was manifest between the wings of the cherubim. In Israel's reckoning of things, and we'll see when we get to the end of of Exodus, you see that when the tabernacle is fully built, fully consecrated, the glory of God descends on it and fills the tabernacle. And that Shekinah, that glory presence, uh, then resided in the Holy of the Holies between the wings of the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. And so Israel spoke in terms of God being enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. The sanctuary as sacred space, it was the place where heaven and earth came together. It was said to be God being seated in heaven, but the Ark of the Covenant being the footstool of his feet. So he's up in heaven in a sense, he inhabits that realm, but he reaches down into the earth such that the base of his throne where his feet sit is Uh, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. He's enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. That was the function of the tabernacle. It was was a way in which you could, uh, it was tangibly evident to Israel that God was in their presence. And yet, that structure, if you've read that section, and hopefully you'll do that this week if you haven't, Uh, The way in which God defined that tabernacle and the priesthood, it showed that even his presence in their midst was at a distance. There was a remoteness to it. Multiple layers between him and the people, not only in terms of the layers of covering, but even in the boundaries of most holy place, holy place, courtyard, barrier, people. There was a distance between him that he made evident even in the way that the priestly access to him was gradated between the courtyard into the holy place, then the holy of holies where God's Shekinah uh, abided, that that place was accessed only once a year by the high priest and then according to a certain ritual. So very limited access to God. And even though he's in the midst of the camp, his dwelling place is in the midst of the camp with three tribes on each side, the 12 tribes of Israel, nonetheless, they are remote from him. They don't have access to him. So the tabernacle and the priesthood were the way in which the covenant relationship of father and son was to be mediated. They were distinct the priesthood and the, and the sanctuary weren't, a, weren't technically 
commandments of the covenant, but they, they were the way in which the covenant would be established and ordered. The law was founded on the priesthood. And I've hinted at what the role of that would be. It would be the, the tabernacle would be the way in which year in and year out Israel's relationship would be carried out with God. And up to this point, both in terms of the uh, Abrahamic people and certainly even those before the time of Abraham, God was encountered and worshipped on occasion in certain places in connection with altars. But now what's happening is God is establishing a recognized dwelling place, which at this point is a portable place because the people of Israel are moving through the wilderness and he's dwelling in their midst. So the sanctuary goes where they go. But the fact that there is this place, this one place that he inhabits in their midst and that goes with him shows that now this encounter and worship of God becomes a perpetual thing. It's not on occasion in a certain place that you go to. He is with the people of Israel. He's in their midst. So that priestly system and that sanctuary presence anticipated The sanctuary spoke to God in the midst of his people. The priestly system that administered that spoke to the unfaithfulness or the distance that existed between God and the people. And so God is giving this provision to Moses even before that distance exists, covenantally. Even before the people have violated the covenant, God is giving them this provision. And so that anticipated what was coming, the unfaithfulness that will have its starting point in the golden calf. But as I say in the notes, it also transcended, the priestly system transcended Israel's unfaithfulness. Just in the fact that the covenant was founded on the priesthood means that the priesthood exists outside of and in a sense, prior to the covenant. The covenant is transcended by the priesthood. And ultimately, what it does is this principle of mediation looks back to the fall in Eden. The creational distance, the creational alienation requires a mediation between God and his creation. And because of the universality of that alienation that came through the fall, it was certainly going to be true of Israel's life with God. If the whole created order exists in a state of alienation and exile from God, then God's interaction with his creation and the creation's interaction with him uh, is going to be through some mediated agency that God provides. And that would be true of Israel as well because they were a part of this thing called the fallen creation. So continuance of the relationship between Israel and God as covenant father and son depended on perpetual effectual mediation that God himself ordained and provided. So what we see then as we read through chapters 25 through 31 is that while Israel is in the process of breaking the covenant, Yahweh is giving Moses the details for his dwelling in their midst, but at a distance, which relationship will be mediated through a priestly system that he puts in place. And what that system will show is that God's answer to Israel's failure is the provision of vicarious righteousness. 
righteousness in the sense of conforming to the truth of a thing's nature and function. A vicarious righteousness. In other words, God will cause Israel to fulfill its own calling and identity. Through this priestly provision in the sacrificial system, he will preserve and sustain the relationship. He will enable Israel somehow to continue as covenant son on behalf of the world, even in the context of their failure but ultimately to the breaking point where now the way in which God will cause Israel to be Israel is by himself taking on Israel's own life and causing Israel to become Israel indeed in the Messiah, right? And that's something that we've talked about as well. Now, that's not in this text, but that's where all of this is going, So just to kind of sum this up a little bit, um, and as I said, this is a very brief synopsis, but as you go through the balance of chapter 25 and through chapter 31, you see God giving very detailed prescription for this sanctuary, and he begins interestingly with the Ark of the Covenant. He begins with the most intimate aspect of this place of his dwelling and encounter and then it moves outward and then it comes back to the altar of incense which was the place in which the priests mediated daily so God unfolds uh, to Moses the definition of all of the aspects and components of his sanctuary and then he turns to the priesthood and the defining of the priests and their garments and their ministration and how they're to be ordained and all of that. And meanwhile, down on the ground, the people are saying, where's Moses? He's been gone 40 days. Is he coming back? What are we going to do? And we'll talk next time about the dynamics, the psychology behind uh, Israel's decision to make this golden calf. But all of the details that God is giving through those several chapters, 25 through 31, um, what you see is, is minute, exhaustive definition down to how many boards and you know, mortises and tenons and how many rings and how many cloths and what size and what about this and this of this wood and this dimensions and overlaid with gold or overlaid with bronze and everything is completely laid out. And that reflects the fact that that tabernacle was to model a pre-existing pattern. The author of Hebrews gets at this, but think again about what Dylan read earlier. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings, just so you shall construct it. Well, what is the nature of a pattern? When you make something according to a pattern, the pattern lies behind the thing that is made, right? Whether it's a schematic or, you know, some other kind of drawing or, or you know, a pre-existing prototype, whatever it happens to be, a pattern is the thing that you're modeling in what you build. The pattern is the thing behind what you're doing. And the point is that the earthly tabernacle was to model a heavenly reality, and it doesn't mean that there's, there's a literal building up in heaven that looked like that. The point is that God wanted Israel to understand that he was having them by their hands through materials they would provide replicate his own dwelling place on the earth. 
that that realm or that that sphere that that dimension that he inhabits he was now in a sense building or replicating on the earth he would be among them in that way so every detail and, and i know a lot of times people try to sort out all of the spiritual meaning of you know why mortise and tenon and why these kinds of boards and why these kinds of fabrics and why this size and and try to read between the lines as to all the spiritual significance of it but the bottom line is that it, it's not so much that every detail had to be exactly that way it's that god had to define every detail so that nothing in the devising and constructing of the tabernacle would be arrived at by human beings there'd be no human invention or contribution or design element in it if god allowed them to decide any aspect of the tabernacle or its or even the ministering priesthood but certainly the tabernacle itself his sanctuary then it wouldn't really reflect completely his own principle of dwelling where he dwells how he dwells So the idea is not that it had to be so many boards of so so much length or whatever but that God was not going to let them introduce any sort of contribution or design element into what this would be. It would be entirely his provision to them. It was to be an earthly representation of a heavenly counterpart. And that's what the author of Hebrews gets at ultimately as he ties that to the Messiah himself. So the Israelite tabernacle then modeled God's heavenly abode and it emphasized in that way to Israel that their covenant God and Father was indeed establishing his dwelling place among them sacred space the place where heaven and earth come together heaven as God's space the earth as the creation space the the place of interface between God and his creation that's what sacred space is all about a place of encounter the place where god can be found and this is why john again makes so much of emphasizing that the incarnate messiah is the dwelling of god he is that tabernacle so god was making known to israel that he was indeed establishing his dwelling among them and yet his presence when you read through this definition in these chapters you see that his presence was completely veiled from them and inaccessible to them only a single appointed mediator could enter his presence on the day of atonement the high priest once a year and then according to a very precise prescription of sacrifice sin offering done in stages so the tabernacle then declared and upheld god's intent to inhabit his creation through human sonship and communion that's what you see in the creation account in genesis 1 and 2 that's where we began this whole series the creation account is telling us the meaning and the purpose of the creation not the mechanics of it the meaning and the purpose of it god's intent in creating and that's that he would be present in and administer his wise his loving wisdom uh lordship rule over his creation in and through the creature who is his own image and likeness man as image lord because he is image son that's what you see in genesis 1 and 2 well the fall 
brought a calamity, a collapse of all of that, exile, alienation for the whole creation, and the rest of the scriptural program, so to speak, culminating with the coming of the Messiah, is God's work towards accomplishing that which he intended in the beginning and which was made impossible through human failure. So the sanctuary, the tabernacle, is is standing on and testifying to that same intent. God hasn't changed his purposes. He's not just going to do something with Israel for a while, then go do something else. This is the way in which he's going to accomplish that goal that he made known in Genesis 1 and 2. What Paul calls uh, ultimately God becoming all in all in creational renewal that is complete. So the tabernacle speaks to that. It speaks to that. But it does so in a way that it shows that that intent of God to be present in and administer his lordship in his creation through human sonship, through communion with his human image children, that that is yet unrealized. He's in the midst of his people, but at a distance. He's in the midst of his people, but unapproachable. He's in the midst of his people, but with a relationship that has to be mediated through a sacrificial system that enables them to, in a sense, be what they're not. To continue in a covenant relationship that they're constantly breaking. A vicarious righteousness that they will be what God has covenanted them to be, son, servant, witness, and disciple. Israel will fulfill its election, its calling, but through a provision that God provides. He will hold them in that relationship of covenant and and its purpose. So in that way, then, the earthly sanctuary was itself prophetic and promissory. The gospel writers understood that. The author of Hebrews clearly understood it. It was prophetic and promissory, meaning it itself was an aspect of promise. It was looking to something that in which God would prove faithful. It was looking to the day when Yahweh would tabernacle among men through incarnation, ultimately culminating with resurrection and creational renewal. This is at the heart of John's gospel. If John's gospel focuses on this idea of temple, sanctuary, sacred space, it does so in this way. That's why his prologue begins, and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, and we beheld his glory, not the Shekinah glory that the high priest would see on an annual basis, or that Israel saw descend and and flood the tabernacle, and then later Solomon's temple. No, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, that's Israelite temple, Shekinah, sanctuary language, but now realized in Jesus himself. And this is what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 15, which I, I note here as he talks about this thing of resurrection and why it's absolutely central. The Corinthians were wrestling with this thing. How does resurrection work? Does a corpse come up out of the grave? That doesn't make any sense. How can you reanimate a dead body? Is this the Frankenstein thing? They obviously didn't know about Frankenstein. But, but you know, how does this work? This is weird. And, and Paul says, let's just begin with the why before we talk about the how. If there is no resurrection, then our faith is in vain. 
Because everything that we are, everything that we're about, everything that we're living unto is in view of this truth of resurrection that is yes and amen in the Messiah. He's the first fruits of God's new creation. And, and we are the fullness of that harvest unto the end that God will become all in all. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. And so he says, therefore, know that your labors in the Lord are not in vain. You're not, your work isn't in vain. You're not working unto just dying and going into the grave, and that's the end of the story. We're not just hoping in this life only. He says, if that's the case, we're most to be pitied of all men. But that's not the case. So resurrection is at the very heart of this. And God will, in a sense, be present. He will, he will build his sanctuary in the midst of men, in the midst of human beings, his people, the Abrahamic people, even more narrowly. He will build his habitation in that sort of a way with the Messiah at the center of it. And that's the lens through which we understand this key principle. And I don't know if you caught it here, Um, but this principle that God's sanctuary was to be constructed with the wealth of the nations. When you read in chapter 25, God tells Moses, say to the people, take up a contribution for me. Gold, silver, bronze, purple, blue, scarlet fabric, all of this material including, you know, uh, noble metals, gold, silver, bronze. Well, you got a bunch of people out in the Sinai wilderness, right, at the foot of Mount Sinai. Where'd they get all that? They got it from the Egyptians. If you read, God had even said to Abraham, when I bring you out, I will bring you out with many possessions, right? Genesis 15. And then in Exodus, God had told Moses when you go, Pharaoh's not going to let you go, but I will break him. And when I do, I will cause the Egyptian people to be favorable to you. And they will give you, you will ask and they will give you their precious value. And in that way, you will plunder the Egyptians. And in chapter 12 of Exodus, in connection with the Passover and their departure from Egypt, it says that the people of, of Egypt God caused them to be favorable towards the Israelites and they gave them their gold and their silver and their bronze and their you know, clothing and fabrics and all of this sort of thing. So where did the stuff come from that the tabernacle was built from? It came from Egypt. God's house was built with the wealth of the nations. And that pattern continues on. Where did the stuff for Solomon's temple come from? It came largely from the tribute that David raised in administering his own kingship over the nations. The nations that that he ruled from the river of Egypt to to Mesopotamia, the Tigris and Euphrates River, to uh, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. Those nations brought their tribute to David. And he consecrated that tribute to the Lord. And then he entrusted that to Solomon, and he used that wealth of the nations to build the temple, including getting cedar for the wood from where? Lebanon. And then later, when the second temple was built, you read in Ezra that the wealth that they used to build the second temple was wealth that Cyrus gave them when the exiles returned from Babylon, right? 
If you read in Ezra 1 through 5, and even when the work was stopped on the second temple and a charge was made to Darius, the king, to go back and because there was this contention about whether they should be allowed to build or not in Jerusalem. And he went back and he saw the decree from Cyrus that this temple should be built and this wealth that he had given to them, including all the things that had been seized by the Babylonians when they destroyed the first temple, all of that went back. But he said not only are they to continue the work and what they've been given there to be able to use, but you, the rulers of the provinces around them, are to give them whatever else they might need. If you look then even at, uh, at Haggai, Haggai and Zechariah are both contemporaries. They're prophesying during the time when the second temple was being built. And both of them speak to the the significance of this second temple and the role that it will play. Just to show you that this principle that's established with the tabernacle follows all the way through and why it's important. So in Haggai chapter 2, It says, on the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. This is to the people who are now back in Jerusalem, returned from exile, and they're rebuilding the temple. Who is it among you who saw this temple in its former glory? It's been... Well, the temple was destroyed in 586. It was completed in its rebuilding in 516. So it's 70 years. There were still some people alive who remembered the former temple. And that's what he's asking, Solomon's temple. How do you see this new one? How does it compare? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison with the glory of Solomon's temple? And yet now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares Yahweh, and work, for I am with you. Work. Don't be discouraged about this rebuilding process. Even though it's been arduous and you've been opposed and you've had to stop and it's just been this giant pain, don't don't lose heart. And even though it seems like it's just nothing compared with the glory of the former temple, don't Don't be discouraged. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of heaven and the God of the armies of Israel, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and the precious wealth of the nations will be brought in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts, and the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace. So God is saying that the wealth of the nations will once again be brought in. I'll shake the nations to release the precious value that is in the nations and bring it in to build this house. And it will be in the context of peace. And then if you look in Zechariah, who's a contemporary, he's he's speaking of exactly the same time, same circumstances in chapter 6. He ties this in now with the messianic person. 
This is Zechariah 6, verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me, Zechariah, saying, Take an offering from the exiles, Heldai, Tobiah, Jediah, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they've arrived from Babylon. And take silver and gold, make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Crown the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold a man whose name is Branch. This ties back to the Davidic promise of a branch of David. The king, the ruler, the messianic figure who is to come. For he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tobiah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you will heed the voice of the Lord your God. Well, the difference here in the Hebrew text is that this branch of David, who will sit as a priest on his throne, will build the house of God. But men will come from north and south and east and west, and they will play into, they will play a role in that building of the house. This Davidic branch will build the house, but all of the nations will, will have a contribution to or a role in the building of that house. Now you take that into the Gospels and even beyond that to Paul, who can talk about, you know, the sanctuary of God founded on Christ, the cornerstone, and together in him we were being built into a spiritual house, a dwelling in the Lord. God's intent from the beginning was that he would inhabit a house constructed out of and, in a sense, um, surrounding himself with or entering into the wealth of the nations. He will be a God in the midst of the human race that he has created. And that's first and foremost true in the Messiah. He is the dwelling of the living God, right? He is the tabernacle. Incarnation is how this happens. But now as we share in him, in his resurrection life, God is taking up his habitation in the world of men. Men coming from north, south, east, and west and taking their role in the building of the house of God. Even when we think about the evangelistic mandate, that's what it's about. It's not about soul winning per se. It's about God building his house, his dwelling in his creation upon human beings, right? And that's why I say here this principle that began with the sanctuary that Israel was to build, the, the tabernacle, that would be the same pattern with the later temple, Solomon's temple, also the second temple, and then so it would be with Yahweh's final eschatological temple, the, the temple of the living God. Once again, what will be the glory of the second house? The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And through him, God will shake out the precious value of the nations and bring them in to his house, and he will give peace.
He will give peace. So this is the significance then ultimately of Israel's sanctuary, but it speaks to the fact that God will be faithful to be in the midst of his people. And even though Israel will fail and that relationship cannot have the intimacy that the covenant prescribed, yet God will have that relationship preserved. He will provide a way for Israel to be Israel in the context of its unfaithfulness. And ultimately, that effectual way will be the Messiah himself who will embody Israel. He will be Israel so that Israel can be reconstituted in him so that they can then do their Abrahamic work of bringing in the precious value of the nations. Let me close then in in prayer. Father, I I don't know how familiar these ideas are to each one. But whether they are or whether they aren't, and to whatever extent they are, I pray that you will cause them to become glorious in our hearts and in our minds. Something that we would contemplate, that we would meditate on, that we would glory in. Father, graft these truths deeply into our hearts and our minds weave them into the very fabric of our being, that we would be transformed by them. For in these things we do see your glory that is in the face of Jesus our Lord. And we desire to see that glory more and more, even as we by your Spirit are being transformed into that same likeness from glory unto glory. These are not academic facts. These are not fun biblical truths to know and tell. They are the very essence at the very essence of what it means to even know Jesus in truth and to be found in him and to be transformed into that same likeness, to understand our own Christian identity and vocation and the destiny for which we're appointed, what it means that all things will in that day be summed up in the Messiah such that our God will become all in all. In that day, your creation will be your dwelling place. And we thank you for that, and we thank you that you have made us stones in that house. And we pray that we would be faithful with that reality, with that trust, and that we would be heralds and testifiers of it to those who don't understand, to those who don't know you. Help us to be faithful sons and daughters indeed. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.